everyone. Good morning. Uh, it's lovely to see you. My name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you join me in turning to Genesis chapter 4? If you are brand new, welcome, welcome, welcome. Please don't be dissuaded by the title of the sermon, um, which I know can, can appear a bit heavy. Um, if you have been joining us uh, in the last maybe eight weeks now, nine weeks, we have been walking through Genesis verse by verse, and we arrived this morning at Genesis chapter 4. We titled the, uh, this first series um, Back to the Garden, but if you've been paying attention carefully, we have, we're no longer in the garden. As of last week, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, and, uh, and, and I'll give you some more recap as we go. I am really excited to be in this text with you this morning because it's a story that I'm sure all of you have some familiarity with, or most of you do, and it's a story that as I've been spending time with it, I've just, am, I've just seen it in some really wonderful new ways, and so I really hope that this morning it encourages you. I think I say this occasionally, but I want to reemphasize it here. Um, Welcome, welcome to our church. Uh, we are a church that really takes God's word very seriously. We want to take uh, sin very seriously. We want to take grace even more seriously. And uh, I hope that you experience that this morning. Just to let you know, um, in the ser- this is the sermon I'm going to be preaching and teaching. The goal of this time is not for you to just to get a bunch of my opinions. Um, that's not my goal as a pastor is for you to be walking away this morning with all these thoughts about me. Um, I really want you to understand God's word more and to hear from him. And so I do hope that that happens this morning as we spend some time in the text together. All right, let's, um, let's, if you have a Bible, you've had a chance to open there to Genesis 4. We'll read the first 16 verses and then um, we'll begin to walk through it together. Very famous story, Cain and Abel. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 4 starting at verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve. Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thanksgiving is coming up. Some of you will stay home and you'll kind of do things with your own family and that will come with its own kinds of complexity. Others of you will go and visit extended family. Some of you will pretend to like that. Some of you will genuinely like that. Around this time, we are always aware of the kind of familial tensions that exist in our relationships with family members. I imagine that most of you have been in some sort of conflict with another human being at one point in your life or maybe even very with a, with a family member, with a sibling. And we wonder sometimes, how do we solve these problems of human conflict or sibling rivalry? And what we know is that it's not really just a problem of your own local circumstances. It's also a problem uh, that exists inside of the very human heart. Money doesn't solve it. Privilege doesn't solve it. Power doesn't solve it. Human beings get into conflicts with one another. Just a couple of months ago, Prince Harry wrote his book, Spare, where in which he calls his brother, Prince William, both his beloved brother and his arch nemesis. Even royalty has problems with family fighting. One of the most popular shows on television this last year Final, its final season was the show Succession, which tells the story of a family with tremendous power, tremendous resources that is constantly at war with one another. The story of the Roys is supposed to be a story representing other famous media families and the ways in which they live in perpetual conflict. Human conflict is inevitable. We fight with our friends, with our neighbors, with our spouses, with our children with our parents, with our family. Some of you got into a fight this morning and then you decided to be here. Thank you for that. The Bible says that the real problem of this kind of animosity that exists between human beings is is because there are passions at war within us. This is what James says in James chapter four. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The Bible says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You have these conflicting passions you desire and you don't have, and so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. 
We saw in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve pointing the finger away from themselves. Adam says, this is not my fault. This is Eve's fault. Eve says, this is not my fault. This is the serpent's fault. They are, as at the end of last week, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but they're still in Eden. And here we have the first murder. Things go out of control so quickly. Sin grows like a cancer. The outline for this morning as we look at these 16 verses is relatively straightforward, pretty, pretty simple, and kind of beautiful, I think, which is just the first eight verses deal with sin. Verse 9 through 14 really deal with judgment. And then verse 15 and 16 show to us once again the goodness of God's grace. We'll spend more time in the first point than the, the next two because you'll, it's important that you understand the story. So um, we'll begin with sin. Let me begin by diving in. We left off last week tragically, Adam and Eve, now outside of the Garden of Eden, but still in Eden. And in verse 1, it says that now Adam knew his wife. The first sexual act in the Bible takes place between a husband and his wife. Adam knew his wife, and in their sexual union, they now bring forth a child. She has the firstborn son, the first person to emerge from the sexual act in Genesis is this firstborn human being named Cain. Cain is born, and he's a firstborn. And if you, if you read the Bible, what you'll conclude again and again and again is to be the firstborn son is a big deal. So Cain is the firstborn, and she names him to get. That's what the word Cain means, to get. She names him to get because she has gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Adam and Eve, have their relationship with the Lord is broken as they are now outside of the garden. And yet still, Eve sees that God is helping her in the process of having a child. Remember, the last thing that God told her was, hey, because of sin, having children is going to be hard. And if you were here last week, we talked about how um, childbearing is going to be difficult. And that doesn't just mean labor, though labor is painful. It also means pregnancy. It also means dealing with infertility. It means the whole thing is now going to be difficult. And yet, Eve is able to have a child. Remember, up until this point, God made Adam from the dust. God made Eve from Adam's rib. But here we have the first human being made with God's help. There's a sense where Eve is looking at this going like, one, I could not have done this apart from the Lord. And two, the Lord is the one who creates and gives life. God is still helping. And this child is a gift of God seeing the grace of God. Today, when we struggle with infertility, our first impulse is often to go to medicine. And I understand why we do that. But when we first turn to medicine, we begin to treat medicine as though it is the giver and creator of life. But in the Bible, that's not the case. In the book of 1 Samuel, when Hannah is struggling with having a child, what does she first do? She turns to the Lord. She prays. And in 1 Samuel 2, she even claims, God, you are the one who gives life. I think when we are struggling to get pregnant or want to be pregnant or dealing with infertility or the difficulty around pregnancy, I think the first place we always must turn is to the only one who can really give life, God, our creator. So, Cain is born, 
And in verse 2, Cain, who is the older brother, it says that she bore another son. In this case, his name is Abel. Now, Abel's name means breath or vapor. For those of you who are kind of like, you know, Bible nerds, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word vapor or hevel, that's the same word as Abel. Abel's name means like vapor. Uh, and his story will be kind of like that. Two brothers, Cain, older brother, firstborn, that's a big deal, younger brother, Abel, to get, older brother, breath, younger brother. And what does Abel, the younger brother, do? He's a keeper of sheep. What does Cain, the older brother, do? He is a farmer. You have a shepherd and a farmer. They are both doing the work that their parents were doing. Adam was given this responsibility to work and to keep. He was given the responsibility to have dominion over the animals. Both of them were. He was given the responsibility to work the ground. These were tasks given to Adam, and he has his wife as his co-ruler. Those two tasks are then played out in the family business. Cain is working the ground. Cain is farming. What is Abel doing? Abel is shepherding. He's caring for the animals. They are following in their father's footsteps. And in verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So, so Cain is working the ground. And even though working the ground is hard, work is hard, labor is hard, life is hard, Cain still finds time to take some of what he has worked and what is, he has cultivated. He takes a portion of it and he brings it probably to where that cherubim with the sword guarding the garden is. And he lays it down as a way of saying, God, all of this work I'm doing is because of you. All of the fruit that I have is because of you. And so I want to give some to you as a way of saying thanks, thank you to you because you've been so good to me. I couldn't work without you. I couldn't work the ground without you. I couldn't cultivate without you. It's hard and it's difficult, but you're still here. And, and even though we're separated, I'm going to give it as an offering to you. I want you to see that Cain's offering to the Lord is a good thing. I just want you to see that. There's no, nothing in the text that says that Cain has done anything bad at this point. He's just, he's just a guy working the ground who's thankful to God. He's the oldest. He's the firstborn. And he takes his offering and he gives it to God. So far, so good. And then it says, Abel, also, verse 4, brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, if you're hearing this text for the first time, you would be sort of instantly aware that while Cain has brought an offering, Abel also has brought an offering, but Abel's offering has a couple noted facts about it. One, it's from the firstborn. It is the best of the best. Second, it's of the fat portions. It is the best of the best of the best. Abel, the younger brother, also brings an offering to God, brings another, uh, another offering, but brings meat, right? Because Cain works the ground, and so he brings his offering. Abel's caring for the animals, and so he brings his offering from what he has worked. Abel has brought a heck of an offering. Now, every parent or person with a sibling in the room knows exactly what happens when two brothers show up before mom and dad, and one of them says, look at this thing I brought. And the other one says, look at this thing I brought. 
And if the second thing is better than the first thing, conflict. And that same conflict happens right here. In verse 4, what, what, what happens? It says that, that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In Hebrew, that just means God gazed upon two offerings. And what does God do for Abel's offering? He gazes at it. He just, wow, Abel. Older brother, firstborn is over here. Wow. Wow. Does he pay attention to it because Cain has done something wrong? No. He just notices that Abel has done something wonderful. This is how later in the Bible, the writer of Hebrews will say, um, in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Notice that it's not that Cain's is unacceptable, it's that Abel's is more acceptable. It was, it was a greater, it just demonstrated, who knows what caused Cain to say, I just want to give, I want to give my first, I want to give my best, I want to give the fat portions, I just, I want to give it to the Lord. In fact, I wondered, text doesn't say, if, if Abel just saw what Cain was doing, was just like, yeah, my big brother's given an offering, I want to give an offering too. And in verse 5, it says that Cain, when God didn't gaze upon his offering, that Cain became very angry and his face fell. When my kids were little, probably, I mean, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I can say one of the things I hated the most as a parent is when my kids would try to get me together to judge something. This happens. If you have kids, they'll grab you and they'll be like, judge our singing contest. And you're like, oh, that's not good because one of you can't sing and one of you can and I got to figure out a way <laughs> instantly. Judge our drawing contest. Judge our, and as a parent, you look for all. You're like, oh man, they're both great. They're both so good. Um, well done, right? You sort of look for like, because you just know exactly what's going to happen. In that moment, if you say, man, that's fantastic. That could use work. Um, you just know what's inevitably going to happen. Well, God here hasn't even said any. He's just looked at Abel's offering and immediately Cain gets angry. We are constantly comparing ourselves to others. We are constantly comparing our blessings, comparing our gifts. We compare everything. And sometimes, even when we become grown, we begin to think that, um, that if God honors someone in any particular way, well, what about me? God, you gave that gift to that person over there. What about me? You did that nice thing. What about me? You blessed them with that. What about me? Cain is jealous and Cain gets angry and his face falls. And he is angry. Why? Because God looked upon his brother's offering and gazed at it. God hasn't said anything to Cain. God didn't say, Cain, what is this? This is not good. Doesn't say it. Before God says anything, Cain is upset. Cain is upset because God has noticed his younger brother. 
What? Just pause for a moment and think about this. Cain should be celebrating. Just think about this for a second. Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Lord, here's an offering. You're worthy of it. Abel goes, I'm going to bring an offering too. Abel brings an offering. And Cain should be like, yeah, look at my younger brother. Given the first and the fat portions, God is worthy of that. In fact, that inspires me. I want to give God more. Let's just celebrate the goodness of God. He should be celebrating that his younger brother is doing what he is also doing. He has been, on some level, a good big brother at this point. He set a good example. But instead of celebrating, he's not really interested in the offering, is he? He's interested in the rewards that come from the offering. If you're really honest with yourself, I bet you can think of lots of times where you are doing something for God really for you. It's not, it's not really about what God deserves. It's about, God, I'm doing this so that you'll give me this. I'm doing that thing with the hopes that you'll acknowledge and bless me in this particular way. Lord, I don't really want to give to you, but I kind of know that if I don't give to you, you won't give to me. So God, I'm going to give to you and then you're going to give me a lot back, right? That's how this works. Sometimes we give to God for our own sake. God, I did this for you. Where's my gift? Where's my reward? I deserve it. I'm the firstborn, Cain might say. Look what I've done. I brought the first offering. What are you gazing at that for? I was the first one to acknowledge you. You chose me first. You made me first. Why is breath getting the favor? Vapor. I want you to see that Cain's problem is not intellectual. Cain's problem is that he doesn't think God is treating him the way that he thinks he should be treated. He is happy to bring God an offering so long as God gives and does what he wants. He's fine with his brother bringing an offering so long as he gets what he wants. I wonder if that's you at all this morning. If we peered into your heart, what would we see? Would we see you thanking and praising and giving offering to God for God's sake? Or are you doing those things primarily so that you can receive? I, I, I venture to say someone in this room is here this morning because someone told them, if you want to be right with God, here's what you got to do. You got to come to church every week. And so you're here and you're singing the songs and you're going through the motions and you're looking at God and the whole thing is just focused on when are you going to get the benefit out of it rather than just doing it and saying, Lord, you're, you're worthy of my time. You're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my life. I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. And then look at the goodness of God in verse 6. Think about all the things that God could say the moment that Cain gets angry. God could say, I made you. What, what are you upset about? He could say, I, I haven't even addressed you yet. He, 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 he could say, you have no right, Cain, in any way, shape, or form, to be upset about anything. He could just snap his fingers and take Cain's life immediately. But instead, look what he says. He says, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face 
fallen. God looks through his actions, sees his very heart. God knows what's happening. And God is so gracious to him while he's angry. And then in verse 7, God says this, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, if you, if you do the right thing, will you not be exalted? Cain, you have no reason to be angry. You, you haven't done anything wrong with your offering. But Cain, this moment has brought you before a choice. And that choice is, are you going to trust in my goodness, in my timing, in my provision, in my blessing, in my plan, or... Are you going to give in to this impulse of anger that is in you? He says, if you do well, you, you will be accepted. But if you do not do well, then he said, sin is crouching. Sin is like, is, is a croucher is what the text says. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. There are all these um, nature shows on television. I'm sure you've seen some of them. Um, and I was watching one the other day and was amazed once again. I'm always amazed by this thing that lions do, um, which is they just try to make themselves look so small while the innocent little zebra or gazelle is prancing around, right? They're just like, oh, I'm just a tiny little lion. I'm just, uh, don't mind me. Just small as possible and then devour. And that's the imagery that God wants you to see about sin. Sin always looks smaller than it is. Always. That little bitterness that you have in your life right now is hiding a monster. That little controlling thing you do, it wants to destroy you. Some of you I know have struggled with or gone through, either have had or know people in your life who have had cancer. And during cancer treatment, there is this awareness that um, in cancer treatment, the goal is to get rid of all of the cancer cells. You don't want to leave and have your doctor say, um, yeah, we left like one little cancer cell left. Like that. We just left one in you. It'll be fine. Because one little cancer cell is not innocent. It will take over it will destroy you. It's, here, here the language is used that, that your, your sin, it's, like a, it's crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's the same language that's used of Eve towards Adam last week in the end of Genesis 3. It's a desire to control, a desire against, a desire to take over. But he says, you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, um, you have options for how to deal with your sin. The first thing I want to commend to you is to always call your sin what it is. Sometimes I listen to us talk and we, um, oh, I have, got a, I, I, I have like a little temptation. No, no, you've got sexual immorality harboring uh, in your life. Oh, I'm just struggling with my thoughts. No, you are allowing lust to dwell in you. No, it's just a, it's just a little, it's just a little, a little materialism. No, you, you have greed 
that if, is going to take over if you don't put it in check. Envy, drunkenness, idolatry, no sin is small. It may appear small, but it desires to have you. So you have to call it what it is. Secondly, you have to see it as it is. It desires to destroy you. It's not just a little pleasure, but a destructive force. As a pastor, I've been a pastor for almost 20 years, and I can't tell you how many stories have started with like, well, first it was little, and then I gave into it a little bit, and then it grew, and I still thought this is not that big of a deal, and then one thing led to another, and then it's out of control, and it's taken over my life. See sin for what it is. It is that that is against you. It is that that desires to destroy you, and then kill it starve it. Invite others in. Grab some people in the church and say, I need to tell you about this thing that I'm struggling with. Would you pray for me? Would you hold me accountable? Would you walk with me? Would you challenge me? Would you encourage me? I can't do this alone. I wasn't made to. Do not try to just manage it or live with it. You know, I know that if you've been around a long time, you've heard me say this before, but Maybe every, t- every year I need to say it again, so I'm going to say this year. If you had a roommate that was trying to kill you, you would not be interested in figuring out how to live comfortably with that roommate. You just wouldn't. You wouldn't. If you had a roommate that was just like, plotting day and night to kill you, your first instinct would not be like, well, maybe I should get a lock for my bedroom door, and maybe I should. You would be like, no, you need to get out. And that's what sin attempts to do. It attempts to destroy you. That's its desire. And so as you're reading this story, God says, Cain, this jealousy, this little jealousy that you're feeling, because I looked at your brother's offering, it's provided you with a choice to do right. You can do right in this moment, or sin is crouching like a tiger. It's crouching like a lion. It's crouching like an ant. It's crouching, and it wants to destroy you, and you've got to rule over it. What are you going to do? And what does he do in verse 8? He says to his brother, let's go out to the field. He completely ignores God. When God speaks to your heart, do not ignore it. They go out in the field, and when no one's around, Cain kills his brother. Genesis chapter 3, you get rebellion and consequences. In Genesis chapter 4, you get murder in Eden. We're just going to eat the fruit, murder. That's what happens. Cain has killed his brother. He killed his brother, the second, the second person that has been born. His younger brother is killed. And so in verse 9, second section, judgment, the Lord comes to Cain and says, where is Abel, your brother? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The same thing that God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, where, Adam, where are you? Abel, where is Abel? Where is Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He knows. And I, it's so heartbreaking. The language that um, Cain uses for his brother is, am I the shepherd's shepherd? His brother was a shepherd, right? He, he says, am I supposed to shepherd the shepherd? 
Am I supposed to have any responsibility over my brother? Am I supposed to make sure he's okay? The answer to these questions are yes, yes, and yes. You're the firstborn. You're the older brother. You bear responsibility. And he denies it completely. He says, I don't know. Am I his keeper? Now, I just want to point out his father in the garden, when God says, where are you? What happened? Did you do it? Adam says, kind of like he tells the truth, but he bucks responsibility. He goes, well, yes, I ate it, but she gave it to me. One generation later, we don't have, well, yeah, I killed him, but I was angry. Instead, we have, I don't know, an outright lie, a complete denial with zero responsibility. He was supposed to be the first to help. He was supposed to look out for his younger brother. He, he was supposed to be responsible for his family. His heart is so hard. And then in verse 10, God says, what have you done? God says, I, I hear his blood from the ground. The ground now tainted by human blood being shed is now crying out for justice. And God says, I I hear that. And then he says to Cain, now you are cursed from the ground. Who was cursed in the garden? If you were listening and paying attention to the text, the serpent is cursed. Adam and Eve are not cursed. The serpent is cursed. Who's the next to be cursed in Genesis? Cain. And that's because if you were listening last week, we talked about how the serpent has offspring. The decision that Cain makes in how to deal with his anger, his jealousy, his decision to kill his brother reveals that he is an offspring of the serpent. To align yourself with the kingdom of darkness is to align yourself with the serpent. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with people who want to kill him. And Jesus says this to them. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice that what Jesus says in John 8 is that you're a child of the devil because you have this desire to murder, to do what your father wants you to do. He's a liar. He is a murderer from the beginning. And so God says to Cain, you're cursed from the ground. Verse 12, the ground won't give you its strength. The ground, you worked the ground, Cain. You developed the ground. It produced fruit for you. You gave that to the Lord, and then you got angry. And then as the ground opened up, what did you give the ground in return? You gave the ground your brother's blood. Do not think that the ground is now going to produce for you in the same way now that you have given it blood. You're going to be banned. You're going to be a fugitive. You're going to be a wanderer. You'll be known, but you will be an outcast. And then in verse 13, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. Too much of a punishment? You killed your brother in cold blood. You showed no remorse, and now you have remorse? We always discover remorse after we're punished, don't we? From the days that we're really little. Even in our own home, our children have had these histories of like, do you know what you did was wrong? And it's like, not really. Here's your punishment. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) 
We're always sorry after the punishment. It's like Cain has committed the most horrific injustice, and now he's like, I notice injustice, but it's towards me. No remorse, no confession, no sorrow. And he can't take it because he knows what this will mean. Verse 14, he says, you've driven me away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I can't even bring you offerings anymore. I can't, I'll be separated from you. I'm gonna be a fugitive. I'm gonna wander the earth and people are gonna try to kill me. I'm anti-killing now. Excellent timing. Our sin, your and my sin, cuts us off from God, cuts us off from the source of life, cuts us off from good relationship with ourself, cuts us off from our relationship with others, cuts us off from the relationship with the ground. It happens again and again. And so here's, here's Cain experiencing the punishment of sin and the judgment of God. And Cain is like, this is more than I can bear. And if you're reading the text, you're like, well, tough, deal with it. You killed your brother. But then see what happens in verse 15. It's just, it's unbelievable. Look what God says to Cain in verse 15. So we get to this last session on grace. Then the Lord said to Cain, not so. They're going to try to kill me. I'm going to be a fugitive, a wanderer. I'm cut off from you. Everything's the word. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. What? This is the worst sin you could possibly commit. He destroyed another image of God. He killed his own brother. He was warned specifically not to give in to his anger. He did anyway. He doesn't show repentance. He doesn't show confession, at least not until he experiences punishment. None of that happens. And what does God say in response? Cain, if anyone kills you, they will be punished sevenfold. And he gets a mark like maybe a tattoo or something. We don't know. He gets a mark, and that mark is to symbolize that he is protected by God. So people are walking around, and they're going to go, who's that guy with that weird mark? Oh, that's Cain. What does that mark mean? Oh, it means God's protecting him. Oh, how did he get that? Well, he killed his brother. What? Well, what do you mean? God is once again from moment to moment in this story, so gracious, gives Cain life. Helps them to, helps Eve to have this child. Gives them the ability to do this work. Receives these offerings. Sees his heart. Comes to him in kindness. Gives him clarity about his choices. Seeks him out. Gives him punishment. Gives him grace. And in verse 16, Cain leaves the presence of the Lord and is now an outcast of Eden in the land of Node, which means wandering. Isolated, yet protected. Took his brother's life, still has his own. Why? Because he let that little bit of sin become jealousy to anger to murder. It all started with that little seed. Last night, uh, 
we did a family movie night, and we found ourselves watching um, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which was a film that came out a few years ago. I didn't see it where Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. And uh, Mr. Rogers, I grew up on Mr. Rogers. Some of you did, some of you didn't. I, he was of my generation uh, as far as kids programming. And the, the film was astounding because what the film is saying that he does so well and so beautifully is he just wanted to help people see that they had choices for how to deal with their anger. And I watched that last night and I thought, oh, that's so amazing because here's God coming to Cain and saying you have choices for how to deal with the sin in your life. Look, um, I know that I'm in a room filled with people and some of you are very angry and you've got, or you've got other kinds of sin in your life and you've got reasons for it and you think you're justified in having it and you live with it and there will be consequences and its desire is to destroy you and some of you, it's already begun to destroy you. Your heart has gotten hard. You refuse to be vulnerable, you're closed off, you're bitter and angry, you have no desire for reconciliation, you're living in secret, you have secret sins and a secret life that nobody knows about, it's cutting you off from your family, from relationships. One of the questions that the Bible asks again and again is, how does God feel about sinners like us? And the answer again and again is that he loves us and that he is honest with judgment and he is generous with grace. As we read the Cain and Abel story, I want to remind you this morning that no matter what you have in your life, the bitterness, the resentment, the anger, the lust, the addiction, the hatred, the jealousy, the envy. Maybe you've been shaking your fist at God or shaking your fist at other people in your family. I want you to know that this morning God offers you grace. And in the same way that God gives Cain this choice, he gives you a choice. Will you receive the grace and forgiveness of God? Will you allow it to transform the things in your life that seek to destroy you. But you have to receive it. So how will you respond this morning? If you've been acting like Cain, if you've been fighting with your siblings, fighting with your neighbors, fighting with God himself, will you repent this morning? Will you confess this morning? Or maybe this morning you just need to say thank you. Thank you, God, that you did not leave me to my own sins. Thank you that you did not give up on me. Thank you that you did not punish me to the extent that I deserved. Thank you that you were kind to me. Thank you for all you have provided for me. Abel's blood cries out from the ground, God says. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, but you have come to Jesus Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ shed for you on the cross speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And it cries out to you that in Christ you can be forgiven, healed, restored, made new, 
that God sees you exactly as you are. He sees your sin more clearly than you do. He hates it more than you do. And he hates it because he loves you more than you do. And he offers you grace and forgiveness if you'd come to him and receive him because he's just that good. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are too good to us. Lord, you hate sin in us because you love us. You hate sin in us because you know that it longs to destroy us and we flirt with it, we live with it, we try to manage it instead of seeking to eradicate it with your help and with the help of others. We try to just keep it at bay. Lord, I pray that this morning we would see a few things. One, we would see our sin in the deepest recesses of our hearts, as small as it sometimes sees, seems, seems as we would see it with great clarity. We would see it for what it is. We wouldn't try to sugarcoat it. We would see it for what it is. We would see what it's trying to do to us. We would see that it wants to destroy us. That you would help us to eradicate it by leaning and trusting on you, on others, through prayer, through discipline. And that as we fail again and again, all the while we would just be overwhelmed this morning with your love and your grace and your goodness. For when we run from you, you pursue us. Because you are good and you are gracious and you are kind. So Lord, would you help us to hear this story, to take sin very seriously and to, to take your grace even more seriously. I pray for those who are here this morning who... Um, Lord, they just need you so badly. I pray that you would be God for them. I pray for those who have been here this morning and they just, they've been giving and doing and working to try to earn your love and earn your forgiveness. Help them to know they already have it. All they have to do is receive it in Christ. We thank you for this morning and for this text and for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus, the great mediator, whose blood speaks a better word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.